There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Mark Spencer, and today you're listening to an episode of Climactic Candid. Now, technically, Climactic Candid is a sub-show of Climactic. It's where we collect all the best interviews from across the network and from some of our favorite shows from outside the network. But today is one we recorded just for Climactic on November 5th, when we were desperately trying to find something to distract ourselves. As if the U.S. election wasn't serious enough, we decided to talk to an expert in migration specifically the Deputy Executive Director of the Mayor's Migration Council, Kate Brick. The Mayor's Migration Council empowers and enables cities with access, capacity, knowledge, and connections to engage in migration diplomacy and policymaking at the international, regional, and national level. They work to ensure that global responses to migrant and refugee issues both reflect and address realities on the ground, for the benefit of newcomers and the communities that receive them. But you'll hear an even better description of MMC's work from Kate herself. And gratefully, I wasn't alone in talking to Kate today. I was joined by a co-host, Mr. Toby Kent, a name and a voice I hope will become quite familiar to climactic listeners in the coming months. Toby is an entrepreneur, a professional speaker, and a business advisor. His work focuses on helping organizations thrive in the face of challenge. He's a board member of the Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia, and for over four years, he was Melbourne's Chief Resilience Officer. We'll get right into it here in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to say that I hope you take away from this that migration is, of course, a huge issue, but it's also a hugely intersectional issue. We're going to touch, of course, on climate, on conflict, and on the best ways for cities to adapt to and prepare for migration. But thinking back to this chat from this morning, the thing about it that's really stuck with me is Kate's answer to Toby's question, is the apocalypse already here, but not evenly distributed? And Kate's answer really made me pause for a second and realize just how profoundly privileged we all are listening to this episode. Those of us who got to make it and and you right now listening to it. I can't, of course, know your situation or speak to it, but for the tens and hundreds of thousands of people already right now in the world who face no other option but to move, and for the millions who in the coming years will face that same lack of option, the timing has never been so ripe for us to acknowledge that people move because they have to, and in the future more and more people will have to move, and that any attempts to demonize those people have got it so wrong. And I hope that you're left after listening to this episode with a greater appreciation for the difficulties of adapting to a greater amount of migration, but also with the imperative that we have to, we must prepare, because it's going to happen. And on that note, on to the chat with Kate Brick, with your co-hosts Mark Spencer and Toby Kent. 
Kate, you've got a uh, you know an extensive history in uh, social uh, policy issues and, and really being active in trying to achieve better societal outcomes. What actually gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets me out of bed is knowing that despite the many challenges facing our world right now that feel overwhelming and existential, there is tangible work that can be done and is being done to address these challenges. And it's happening right where many of us, myself included, live, um, and that's in cities. And so if you look at issues like migration and climate change, these are complex phenomena that impact millions of lives globally. And when you look at the big picture, it's hard to see a clear path forward. And so I find that when you zoom in on what can be done at the local level, this world of possibility opens up and you can see how city leaders aren't waiting around for national or international leadership. Um, they are leading right now in real time with pragmatic, effective solutions. And so knowing that in the work that I do at the Mayor's Migration Council is empowering and enabling cities to do this and do it better and to make a difference, that's what gets me out of bed. That and coffee, I would say. <laughs> it's very relatable. <laughs> Kate, you're the type of person that I would like, you know, we'd be at like a friend's backyard barbecue and we'd be having a chat and I would have no idea that you're working on something that means you're rubbing shoulders with people like Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA who's become a, a really like internationally known figure or like you're working on something so important. So you must have it all the time then that like when you're just out living life and you're having a chat with someone and they ask, you know, what do you do? How do you kind of explain the mayor's migration council to them in a, in a relatable way? I tell them that the MMC was founded by a group of incredible leaders, mayors from all across the world to ensure that cities have a seat at the table for critical national and international policymaking around migration and refugee issues, um, to ensure that global responses from policy decisions to financing mechanisms reflect the realities that we're facing on the ground. And that's really where the impacts of these issues, migration, but also climate and the pandemic, that's where all of this is happening directly. So to do that work, what we do is we provide cities from across the globe, regardless of size, with four key things. The first is access. And so it's that entry point into these national and international conversations where these decisions are made. It's capacity to make sure that once cities are in these spaces that they have the diplomatic skills and the advocacy capacity to really talk about what it is that they need and be able to ensure that the resources that they need come back to them. The third would be those resources. And so a lot of the work we do is around unlocking those resources um, from those international mechanisms and making sure that they're flowing back to cities so that they can deliver those outcomes on the ground where they're felt. And then the fourth is um, around opportunities for action. So once we've unlocked those resources, helping cities to make sure that they're able to achieve those goals that they've set for themselves that are often global goals, but that they are supported and connected to one another to actually push that action forward in their local work. Thanks, then, Kate. And, you know, I think you've been really clear on describing, you know, where uh, the Mayor's Migration Council came from and the kinds of action. But... Migration has really been part of the human story, if not the human condition, since we became humans. Uh, and, you know, that, that push, that strive to move to, to better lands, to feed our people, to uh, raise our families. What is it uh, about migration here two decades into the 21st century 
um, that is either different uh, or how would you describe kind of the shape of migration at this point in history? You know, it's interesting that you frame the question that way, because I think that the shape of migration now, as you put it, isn't too dissimilar than how it's been historically. To your exact point, people have been leaving their homes due to myriad reasons, conflict and lack of economic opportunities, climate change, which I know we'll talk about, um, historically to provide better lives for themselves and their families. And the reality is that despite what the media often portrays, um, the share of the global population uh, that is migrating has stayed relatively similar around three to three and a half percent the last few decades. But while that number is constant, I think what we all notice and talk about and what impl influences public policy the most are these spikes that we see. And these can be spikes that are related to a climate-induced disaster where, you know, hundreds or thousands of people are displaced. They can be these large refugee movements. Um, and these are small in overall numbers, but really, really impactful where they're happening. And they also can be destabilizing and they can affect public policy and the narrative on this issue. Um, so there are, you know, lots of examples of that recently. I would maybe pinpoint one, which would be the Syrian refugee crisis, which is you know, not a moment in time because we've seen its repercussions, um, you know, in the years really since it started, but the implications that it had for public policy across Europe and then the implications it had for the local communities where so many people have ended up. Um, and that just goes to show that there's this real need for, for cities and societies to be able to adapt to these kind of spikes when they happen. Um, I would say the other thing maybe that isn't... Um, necessarily a change, but more of a, a trend that we're seeing. So how, how the migration trends are changing, and that is that people are increasingly migrating internally within their own country. They're increasingly migrating due to climate-related reasons, and they are moving for the most part to cities. So we know that by 2050, 68% of people will live in cities, and 95% of that urbanization is going to take place in the developing world. Mm. It's it's massive, and it's a funny thing about the human condition. Where if it's a slowly rising background level, we can adjust. Like you see, it must be all the time in our work how adaptable we are as a as a people. Um, so if something kind of changes slowly over time, it's that frog in boiling water effect. We can kind of adapt until we just can't anymore. But our ability to adapt to that point is is incredible. So sometimes it takes a, a real flashpoint, sudden break situation like the Syrian civil war, all of a sudden, millions of unexpected refugees flooding into Europe all at once to really make you aware of the, the broader macro shift that's happening. So to, to ask a question about intersectionality between climate and migration, like, is, is the migration community, the, you know, the space you work in, is there a degree of comfort with attributing climate um, impacts uh, leading to something like the Syrian civil war, or is it kind of seen as there's climate causing migration on one hand, and then there's wars happening on the other? But of course, we know that it was actually climatological shifts and and food growing, and it was real on the ground climate truths that exacerbated a lot of the situation in Syria. Exactly. I mean, you you said it better than I could have it that there is an increasing realization just how interconnected mobility and climate change are. Um, I think that. The global frameworks for this haven't caught up with this reality, and so there's a lack of a legal definition for 
you know, someone who is displaced or moving because of climate related reasons. And that has real implications for specifically cities, but also nation states as they're trying to plan and to account and to protect people who are affected by um, climate induced displacement. But I would say that increasingly there is this understanding of what that link is. Um, and there have been a lot, there's been a lot of research lately to show what this is going to look like in, in numbers. And we know that in 2018 alone, um, it's estimated that more than 17 million people were newly displaced as a result of disasters linked to natural hazards, most of which are climate and weather related. And the International Organization on Migration estimates that between 25 million and 1 billion people will be displaced by climate change within the next. Yeah, some pretty hairy figures there. Kate, in the same kind of ways you've just done uh, really laying out um, very clearly the link uh, between migration and climate. Can you just, for our listeners, do the same around mig uh, migration and cities? You know, why is this such an urban issue? Absolutely. So building on what we know, um, that not only uh, will 68% of people live in cities by 2050, but as I said before, the majority of the movement that's coming as a result of climate change um, will take place internally, and it's going to take place in the developing world. And so what that means is that 75% of infrastructure that needs to be in place in the next 30 years to accommodate this urbanization has yet to be built. And that means that there is a huge opportunity, but also a challenge for a lot of these cities that are in the global south to have a reckoning. Um, and there are many are experiencing this already, which is um, that their infrastructure isn't ready to receive so many people. Uh, but the, the way specifically cities are experiencing this is so multifaceted because cities are experiencing the nexus of climate change and migration as places of origin as places of transit, as destinations for migrants coming internationally, internally, and then within the city itself. And so um, when you look at what's happening and as people are moving in higher, higher numbers to cities, you see how that plays out really differently in different places and all of these different interconnections that come out of that. So first, um, and I alluded to this already, but you know that rapid urbanization puts a significant strain on city infrastructure, particularly in the developing world where urban growth is most likely to take place in informal settlements. And these informal settlements are out of reach of basic services and municipal assistance, and they're at high risk from natural disasters and the effects of climate change itself. Within that, migrants are typically living in these places that are already the most vulnerable, where sanitation and access to water and access to transportation are all challenges. And that's coupled with the fact that these are often the areas that are most vulnerable to climate shocks. So if you look, for example, at Freetown, Sierra Leone, which is um, the mayor is a founding member of the, the mayor's migration council. There, the city population is expected to double in the next decade. Right now, it accounts for 20% of the country's population. They live on 0.01% of the country's land. And as we see this rapid urbanization, there has not been time for land use planning. And we see these migrants who are coming in. And in, in the case of Freetown, it's very much rural to urban migration, where the effects of climate change have made it unsustainable to live um, in these more rural areas. They're coming into the city um, and they're settling um, in informal settlements that are on the outskirts of the city. They're on hillsides and they are very vulnerable to climate shocks. 
Um, when you have rain, there's mudslides. And then there's also just very little infrastructure generally, little access to water, little access to sanitation services. Um, and, and that's a challenge. And we can talk in a bit about some of the innovations that we're seeing. But then on the total other side of it, you have cities, you know, cities aren't only prone to climate change in the global south, as we all know very well. And so if you look in the American Gulf Coast, for example, cities like Houston and New Orleans that are impacted by hurricanes that have displaced hundreds of thousands of people. We see the fires all across Australia and in my home state of California. Um, across the world, cities are having to think about how to be prepared to move some or all of their populations out of harm's way. And again, going back to what this nexus is, a lot of these, these populations include migrants and refugees who are often, again, in these vulnerable parts of the city. Um, just to give a different example from Freetown, look at Houston. They, their resilience strategy is focusing on ensuring that people don't live in the floodway, which is typically where a lot of low-income families and immigrant families live. And so the last piece just in this very complex migration climate nexus, I would say, is that that resilience piece is really critical. And it's an angle to approach the climate migration nexus that perhaps hasn't been talked about as such as much recently. But we know that cities are at the forefront of climate action and resilience planning um, because cities account for 70 percent of global CO2 emissions. And we know this is going to only grow as cities have more people coming to them. Um, and as cities across the globe are putting together these climate action plans and these resilience plans to mitigate the impacts of climate change, um, they're starting to think about not only green strategies, but having equity be a central component of that. And they're working to ensure that their strategies are inclusive of migrant and refugee communities. You already done it a bit. Um, you know, you mentioned Houston, uh, for example. Um, could you give us some other examples uh, where you feel that cities are really setting the agenda, giving us really, you know, it'll only be a fraction of the cities around the world at the moment, but some of them really will be showing us kind of a, a way that the future, we could be addressing this in future. Could you just give us a couple more examples? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, so one example, Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage is seeing migration not only internationally from all over the world, but from across Alaska, a lot of the native Alaskan populations who are affected by climate change. And, um, you know, the temperature is warming. It's less sustainable to be doing agricultural work, coastal erosion. They're coming to the city of Anchorage. Anchorage has, I think it's more than 150 languages that are spoken in the city. It might be more than that. I can fact check. But um, so the city is incredibly diverse. And a few years ago, they started to think about what can we do as a city to not only make sure that everybody has everything they need, but also to really maximize this huge asset that we have of, of this international population and this extremely diverse native Alaskan population to make sure that the city is responsive to the needs of this population, but also we are making sure that everybody is able to be successful and to thrive. So they put together a welcoming roadmap that laid out a bunch of different policies and ideas to make sure that the city is responsive and inclusive, everything from the tr addressing the transportation systems to supporting immigrant small business owners to creating a very robust language access plan that ensures that every single city department has their information available in multiple languages, which as we know now in the COVID context is incredibly important. Um, but beyond that, when they started to do their resilience strategy and build their climate action plan, they made sure that those three 
conversations were happening in unison and that they were happening holistically. And so now as they're implementing all three of these, their climate action plan, their resilience strategy, their welcoming roadmap, the city is intentionally making sure that department heads are meeting with one another and talking to each other about how this can be an integrated conversation because it should be. Let's give you an example from a different part of the world, Sao Paulo, Brazil. So Sao Paulo has migrants who are coming internationally from all over the world, and they have made it a priority to be and to really share a message that they are welcoming to everyone. And so they have a council that's set up that represents migrants and refugees who meets with the city government to make sure that city government policy is taking into account the needs of this population. That council was incredibly important during COVID relief and recovery efforts to make sure that information was getting out to the rest of the population. Um, and they are also thinking, I mean, some of these examples are more in the context of COVID, but again, this is all so interrelated, um, creating projects so that farmers who are in rural areas who are struggling are able to have their goods sold in the city at a time when people need food more than ever. Migrants and refugees are working to prepare meals and those meals are getting distributed across the city. So again, just sort of thinking of this intersectionality. Does the Mayor's Migration Council have any kind of experience or role to play in kind of mediating tension between the city and the national level? Because there's got to be some cities that are more welcoming of migrants that see it as, as not only a strength to the city, but potentially a good, honestly, PR and branding aspect as well of like, oh, we want to be that welcoming city. But the nation, I'm, I'm thinking Sao Paulo again, it's like uh, the, the national government doesn't seem to have a, a desire to want to be warm and cuddly. Uh, but Sao Paulo, the city, might see a, a benefit in that. Is there is there a role that MMC plays in kind of advising how to handle uh, disparities, I guess, in priority <laughs> between those levels of government? I would say our role is to find those pathways and those opportunities for conversation. And so one of our strategies is actually to create these more productive conversations between cities and national governments, because ultimately cities are experiencing this on the ground in real time. They have the best knowledge and understanding of what the policy solutions need to be to respond to both the challenges, but also the opportunities. And so to the extent that we can facilitate those conversations, that's that's a big priority of the work that we do, in addition to elevating the experience of the city in these international conversations and making sure that cities are affecting those policy conversations as well. Kind of holding people to account, hey, be like, just talk, but we're gonna we're gonna make sure you're talking and we're gonna give you a forum to talk. We're gonna help facilitate that conversation because these conversations need to happen. And if they're not, we'll we'll notice. Exactly. And you know, just to give a very concrete example for that, the founding of the MMC took place on the sidelines of the first international agreement around migration. So the global compact on migration, the global compact on refugees that were agreed upon by 164 states, uh, cities played a role in the negotiation for that for those two agreements. And specifically, as a result of city advocacy, there was a provision include, included that all of the member states agree to around ensuring access to health care for immigrants and refugees, regardless of status. And we know how important that is right now in the context of COVID. Um, it was because of cities that that provision is in there in this now recognized agreement globally. Um, and that that's where we were found. It was on the sidelines of the agreement for, for those two compacts, because it is so important that cities are at the table for that conversation. One of the interesting things is, so in my previous role, Kate, I uh, 
worked with your colleague Victoria in the uh, Hunter Resilient Cities, now Global Resilient Cities Network. And one of the things that was so valuable about that was there were so many uh, similarities shared by cities. And yet, on the other hand, uh, each city is unique. Although around the world, we're obviously seeing this tremendous uh, push towards urbanization. But in some cities, we are seeing depopulation uh, and they're declining cities. I'm just wondering if there are examples of cities that are actively encouraging uh, migration. Yes, absolutely. And many are doing so in the context of positioning themselves as being climate havens, um, especially in the American context. The cities that are most well-placed to endure climate change over time are also the ones that have been facing population decline. Um, so if you look at cities throughout what we call um, the Rust Belt or the Great Lakes region, these are post-industrial cities that have seen significant population loss over the last several decades as a result of the decline in the manufacturing industry and the subsequent loss of jobs. These cities are branding themselves as welcoming to immigrants um, and in many ways competing with one another to attract immigrants. So you see places like Buffalo, New York, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, Detroit, Michigan. These are cities that know that not only do immigrants stimulate population growth, but they also support the tax base. They fill critical gaps in the labor market. They start small businesses. They buy homes. They spend money in the local economy, all of which is helping revitalize these cities. Um, but even in cities that are already growing, cities in uh, the American Southeast, like Atlanta and Nashville, um, and in the Mountain West, Denver, these are cities that see welcoming immigrants as an economic imperative. You know, they are competing with one another for global talent and for global business, and they are intentionally branding themselves as welcoming to international communities, both in terms of the narrative that they've created, but as well as the actual local policy environment that is, in fact, creating a welcoming environment for people um, who come from all over the world. On the other side of things, changing the framing from more of an economic one to a humanitarian one, you see cities in Europe who have responded to the refugee crisis and, and most recently the fires in the Greek camps of Moria by coming out and saying often ahead of their national governments that these cities are ready and willing to take in more refugees. So we've seen cities like Vienna and Dusseldorf and Zurich, Barcelona, Many cities across Switzerland and Germany both are saying that they are ready and willing to, to take in more refugees because they know it's the right thing to do and they have the capacity. And they also know that these refugees bring so many things to contribute to their communities as well. Kate, we've been talking a lot about the world, and it has been great getting this international perspective and, and talking about places in South America and talking about the Syrian civil war and talking about, of course, the, the refugee crisis into Europe, which triggered Brexit and kind of set um, what many people, like myself included, we, we kind of refer to since 2016 as the darkest timeline, because everything that potentially could have gone wrong seems to have on the world stage, potentially not everything. So, But I was really surprised to hear that the seemingly one of the most radical actions by a city being taken is is a city within America, a, a country that in the last four years has definitely turned away seemingly on the national level from being welcoming to, to migrants and, and, and refugees specifically. 
And are there other examples that you can think of, of a truly kind of radical solution from a city? And I'm thinking like, you know, Portugal did their legalization of drugs nationally. And like, you get other countries doing these radical experiments. Is there a, a really, is there a city doing something that you've said, wow, that's, that's strange. That's out there. I, you know, what came to mind immediately when you said that question, and it, I don't actually think this is radical. It's just extremely innovative is what the city of Freetown is doing in Sierra Leone, because they, as, as we talked about, they are experiencing rapid urbanization, and it's a city that was built for a much smaller population, um, which has caused a serious uh, sanitation crisis. As the population has ballooned, people are coming in from rural areas, and they're making homes in those informal settlements where there's no system for waste collection, leading to really serious sanitation challenges. The city has put together as part of this larger transform Freetown strategy that they have, which has a number of different initiatives associated to it. The one that came to mind immediately when you asked that is their waste management program. Um, the waste management program through which the city brought tricycles and provided them to residents of the informal settlements, many of whom are rural to urban migrants and also many of whom are youth. Um, and they are providing them with the training and the tools to actually go door to door and register people for waste service collection. So now the city has increased from 8,000 households to 30,000 households that are part of the waste collection service. And this is this incredibly mutually reinforcing strategy where you're addressing climate action, you're addressing youth unemployment, and you're creating jobs and creating pathways for upwards mobility. And then you're also addressing the health challenges that have come as a result of these sanitation issues and have only been exacerbated with COVID. Um, so to me, that I, I just love that example because it's thinking about how you can look at this challenge holistically and, and hit on so many different targets that the city has to become more resilient, more green, and more equitable all at once. I, I do love that. There, there's a lot of things to resonate there with. Just one of the things to really humanize it is the thought of being like I'm 12. I've just moved from a, a subsistence farm in in rural agricultural Sierra Leone. So I've moved from Sierra Leone into into a city, and I've I've never seen this many people in one place before. And now I'm going door to door, and I'm signing people up to a. I'm extolling the benefits of waste collection on improved sanitation, and your family's going to be healthier. They're not going to get sick. You have one of these smells in your home. And then this group of kids is then going to be empowered to go door knocking for an upcoming election, or they're going to take this door knocking sales skills and they're going to apply it to, hey, you can also get decentralized solar panels for your for your roof potentially as you start to to build out more infrastructure there. And I I love that. There's there's so many. That's an on ramp to so many other things. That's that's a wonderful example. Absolutely, and that's funny because I in my mind was thinking, and they're getting all of these business development skills on how to start your own business and how to be an entrepreneur and how to build, you know, a business plan and have financial skills. Um, and you just took it to a whole other level with the civic engagement piece. So <laughs> I like it. Uh, to, to quickly, to follow up on that, as one interesting thing we haven't talked about, and, and I know it's kind of a fraught topic, both in the U.S. and here in Australia, where we are, is looking at China as any kind of example of, of a good thing. And I've lived in China for a couple of years and taught English over there. And we were in an old city, but then five kilometers down the road was the new city version where they built out the entire city. No one had yet moved to it. So it was one of these ghost cities. All the buildings were there. There was hundreds of apartment buildings. It was just, it was bizarre going over to there to this, this literal just empty ghost town. 
but it was all built and ready for millions of people. And I guess, it, does China get talked about as, as a good example of how to manage internal migration? Because it has been shocking in the last two decades how many people have moved, of course, from rural to urban in China. No, I haven't heard China talked about in that way. And that's actually Honestly, now I'm going to look into it. doesn't surprise me. Judging from our, our, that last point, though, like it, when you get a top-down system that just says, look, build the stuff, build it, and they will come and, and the rest will sort itself out. Just, just top-down, brutal, force it through. And it doesn't seem to work. Or there seems definitely to be some disadvantages of that. So I, I love the the opposite that the humanity of the the free town example. Right. I mean, I think it actually it does exactly that. It speaks to why these solutions that are cultivated at the local level are so important and so effective is because cities know that if they don't think about how to best include newcomers, embrace newcomers, they're making themselves more susceptible to challenges down the road, including damage from climate shocks. But ineffective management of all these challenges are going to exacerbate existing stresses on city systems and services. Um, but if you incorporate things like migration into your planning, developing proactive rather than reactive inclusion strategies when it comes to things like housing and infrastructure and transportation and education, cities are turning this into a major opportunity that can have a positive impact for everyone. And they're able to do that because they are living that experience every day and they know what works for the most vulnerable is going to make the city better for everybody. And I don't think that you have that same perspective when you're coming from the top down, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to set up Toby for a couple of questions now about the thing that's probably on all of our minds as we record this on the 5th of November in, in Australia, the, the evening of the 4th for you, Kate. Um, yeah, we're, we're talking about Parliament. We're talking about, uh, yeah, the 5th of November, 1670-something, maybe. Um, now, of course, we're talking about the, the U.S. election and kind of what that might mean and what comes next. Um, so just for a bit of context for listeners, as, as we talk, yes, it is the 5th of November here. Obviously, migration has been a big topic in the U.S. election. Uh, Trump has popularized anti-migrant sentiment, not just in the U.S., but globally. He's kind of made it okay to blame migrant communities and countries for anything under the sun. Um, and Toby's got a couple questions for you around what the future might hold. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, I think the world too often uh, has been drawn into seeing US politics as something of a game show without really acknowledging the tremendous repercussions for the international system as a whole. I'm just wondering if, in spite of uh, the last four years under the Trump administration of anti-immigrant sentiment and so forth, whether uh, perhaps at the international level or in the US, but just generally, have there been any improvements? Are there any bright patches um, within the regime uh, for migrants over the last four years or so? The bright patches that would exist in the U.S. context has been how much it has incentivized, how much this climate has incentivized cities to really push it even further to make sure that they are creating a space where everybody in their community, regardless of what their immigration status, feels comfortable, feels protected, feels like they have access to services. You know, at the national level, frankly, no, I wouldn't say there are bright spots. But the major bright spot is that this has really forced cities who were already 
kind of at the forefront of this, because even before this administration, they had been waiting and waiting and waiting for national immigration reform. We need in the, in the United States, a comprehensive immigration reform that's going to just adjust the system to be what it needs to be so that the visa system reflects the labor demands in our country and reflects all the important things that immigrants are doing. But so cities had already been thinking about how do we, to, to what we were talking about earlier, how do we attract global talent? How do we make sure people know that they're welcome here? The context of the previous administration really just catalyzed that further. And what we saw were cities thinking about, okay, what is it within our scope that we can do to make sure that people feel safe and protected and part of our social fabric? So that led to things like an increase in the number of cities that are using municipal ID cards that are identification cards that you can get regardless of what your status is that give you access to libraries, to your child's school. In some cases, they're associated with a bank account. Um, and it's also been just a great equalizer because it is also helping more vulnerable populations, homeless populations have an ID card where they, they hadn't previously um, to use with law enforcement. And, and that, that's another big piece of it is sort of city's responses from a law enforcement standpoint to really make clear and to set very clear guidelines that local law enforcement do not implement national immigration policy or national immigration law, because that was really eroding trust between the police and the immigrant community. Um, and so a lot of cities around the country have made very clear uh, the distinction between local police who are there to serve the community um, and national immigration officers. Yeah, that's fabulous. Thank you. And mindful that this follow-up question is asked uh, at a moment in time where the result of the election is still hanging in the balance. But from your perspective, I guess right now we have to hedge and say, depending on which way the final casting ballot falls, uh, what do the next four years likely mean for migrants in the US? I think that it means, again, that the role of cities will be more important than ever, regardless of what the outcome is. So if the Trump administration has a second term, um, it means that cities are going to just have to double down on their efforts to make sure that they're doing everything in their power to protect their community members and their residents. Um, in a situation where we have a new administration, there's going to be a lot of work to right the wrongs of the last administration, including or in terms of global standing. And so in a situation where we continue with the same administration, cities will play the role that they're playing right now, where they're actually coming into international fora. The Paris Accord is a perfect example. Today, cities from all over the country, uh, today was the anniversary of the formal um, announcement that the US was gonna withdraw. That process is official as of today. With that, we saw American cities from all over the country say, not on our watch. We're still we're still adhering to this. This is important. This is important to our future as cities, as a country, as a globe. And we're going to continue to do that. And I would say the same thing will happen with migration. We'll see cities that are part of these international conversations um, continue to do that and to continue to talk about what they need and what international policy regimes should look like and what national policy regimes should look like. Um, and if we have a new administration, I think, again, they'll have to go back to cities and and make sure that we're continuing 
to represent the United States diplomatically abroad in that same way. We have a lot of work to do to rebuild after the last four years when it comes to this issue. We lost talent from all over the world. If people, international students who would have come here and they chose Canada or Europe instead, and that affects the, the American economy. And so there's going to be a lot of work to do. And I think cities are already thinking about that. And throughout this administration, they were thinking about it. Um, and that's going to continue. Thank you so much, Kate. Yeah. Um, Kate Brick, you're Deputy Executive Director of the Mayor's Migration Council. You've brought so much experience and perspective to this chat. And thank you so much for zooming out with us and, and speaking on behalf of, of the expertise uh, in in the migration field. Um, I'd love to ask just a few questions of kind of you, Kate, the person, to kind of round this out here and to, to bring us back down. Um, just first question, Kate, do you have any pets? I live in New York City, so sadly, no. <laughs> I didn't hear a, a dog no. <laughs> barking or a cat scratching at the door behind you. Are, are you a dog or a cat person? I'm a cat person. I know there's a lot of judgment associated. Okay, good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Stuff them. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. Um, Kate, as just a, as a person, um, when you hear the term climate refugee getting talked about, you know, like on news programs or documentaries or just in conversation, like how do you personally kind of feel about that term? What is that kind of, yeah, how do you react to it, I guess? I, I mean, the way I react as someone who works in this field is that they're that isn't a term that exists because there's no legal framework for it. And the way, and it's it's a very controversial term, um, but the way that I think about it is, I think the way that cities think about it, which is that it doesn't matter what you're called, what your definition is, if you're a refugee, if you're an economic migrant, if you're an asylum seeker, if you're undocumented, what matters is that you're a person who's a contributing member of society and that your needs should be met. Um, so to me, I, I think that there needs to be a global framework to address this because there are implications of that that will, will help cities plan better and, and be able to think more intuitively and pragmatically down the road, uh, not least of which planning with their national governments and getting access to data and information and financing mechanisms to help them plan. So for that reason, I think it's really important there be a global framework for this conversation going forward. But for me, it doesn't matter. Uh, so this is a play on the William Gibson quotation, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Um, one of the things, uh, conversation Mark and I were having recently and has been kind of a play on that is the apocalypse is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. What's your response? I would agree. I think, I mean, as we talked about earlier, we know that the implications of, of what we've been talking about today, specifically climate change and climate migration, are going to disproportionately affect certain parts of the world, um, South Asia, Latin America, Northwest Africa. Um, it's just the reality of it. And so I think all that means that we need to really be thinking proactively and strategically about how we make sure we get the resources to the places that need it most. I know we've said a couple of times that we're glad this isn't live, but let's pretend it was and we were doing this in front of a live audience. And You've got a, you've got Kate Brick at at 20 years old, and she's an undergrad at the moment. She's watching this in the crowd. She doesn't realize she's you in the future, but she wants to be you. And she comes up to you after the talk, and she says, "Kate, what's what's the one bit of advice you'd give me to to follow in your footsteps? What what what's a good bit of advice for a young Kate to to be where you are now?" I would just say, talk to everyone about everything. You never know what conversation you're going to have is going to spark an idea or a passion or a pathway forward. So I would just say, keep an open mind, explore everything. And importantly, 
talk to people who think differently from you, um, which is very hard to do right now. And I, I need to tell that to myself, you know, today of all days. Um, but you learn things. And in order for us to progress as a society and for us to come up with solutions to these huge problems that we face, we have to be able to talk to people and create solutions with people who think differently from us. So I would start that young, get used to it. That's wonderful. Uh, Toby, do you have any, any other questions at this point? Um, no, I think maybe just a general roundup one, Kate. Uh, Kate, this has been fabulous. Thank you. Is, is there anything, um, final comment uh, or something we haven't covered you'd like to just raise before we go? I would say this isn't necessarily new, but I would just restate that at the moment that we're in with the confluence of all of these huge global changes happening and the implication that they have for millions of lives all across the world, recognizing the power and the opportunity that is happening at the city level and really looking to cities as leaders and innovators who should be part of this conversation going forward, who should be part of the conversations at the national level, who should be part of the conversations at the international level, and who should be receiving the mechanisms and the funding to be able to execute what they're already doing so well on the ground better and at scale. And so, you know, coming from the perspective of the Mayor's Migration Council, where that is the reason why we exist, I would just once again shine a light on on the role of cities in, in changing the world. Wonderful. Kate Brick, uh, Deputy Executive Director for the Mayor's Migration Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Toby Kent, uh, for five years, the Melbourne Chief Resiliency Officer. Um, thank you so much for joining me on Climactic, the podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. I've been Mark Spencer, your your humble host, who's learned a lot in this session. And I uh, thank you all so much for joining us. If you want to find more about Kate and follow her work, where can people do that, Kate? You can follow the MMC through our website at mayorsmigrationcouncil.org. We also have a dedicated website that shows best practices from cities across the globe to have inclusive COVID-19 response and recovery, and that is mmc-response.org. And then you can stay up to date with us day to day on Twitter at at mayorsmigration. Wonderful. All the links to that will be in the show notes for today's episode, along with where you can find more about my co-host for today, Toby Kent, as well. Toby, thank you so much for joining me. Have you had fun? Indeed, I did. Thank you. Excellent. All right. And now let's get back to doom scrolling through the U.S. election results. Let's wish for all the best and um, stay safe out there, everybody. Thank you so much. I'd also like to thank guest producer and editor for this episode, Lloyd Richards. Lloyd's a freelance audio producer here in Melbourne, and you can find more about him and book him at lloydrichards.net. I'd also like to thank musician Tom Day for the use of his music in this and so many other climactic episodes. And you can find out more about Tom and buy his fantastic music at music.tomday.me. The track we used in this episode was the somewhat appropriately titled Empty Cities. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network at climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. 
This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.